Alright, cool. So, now, impossible exchange. Um, I'm obviously not doing these texts in order now. I've kind of jumped all over the place because I've been pressed for time and done uh, shorter ones to, you know, fill in when I had no time. Uh, so, but today, impossible exchange, it's a longer one, obviously, it's a, and it's a collection of essays, really. There's no guiding theme, which is pretty indicative of Baudrillard's quote-unquote late work. It's very aphoristic, right? Taking after Nietzsche. Um, <clears throat> so for that reason, it's going to be difficult for me to kind of trace common threads. But as I've been doing uh, with the with the other texts that are like this, I've been, just been trying to pick out specific themes. So to re oh, that was a cat. So to really get the essence of the text, though, it's necessary to read it um, because I'm not going to cover every single one of the essays presented in great detail just because, uh, it, you know, it'd take me forever. Because, you know, each one is its, it's, its own thing, its own singularity, if you will, that uh, would make, you know, uh, presenting it, in order to present it faithfully, I'd need to, you know, spend a great deal of time on each, but for the sake of time, just going to give a, you know, a general overview of what he's doing in this text. So, to start out, uh, Impossible Exchange, from the title, we should be reminded here of a of an idea that first comes about in Fatal Strategies. So in that text, he, he proclaims that we have reached the end of exchange as we know it, uh, kind of signaling the end of capitalism. So it's, mar you know, communism realized, we just don't know it. And he, this is actually an idea that comes up in a number of different places for him, uh, where he believes that maybe we've already arrived at communism, maybe this is what it is. Uh, despite all the, the all the attempts to claim that you know cap this the same primary principles of capitalism that is it has to rely on living labor it always extracts surplus value all that yada 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 um, Baudrillard you know taking into consider uh, consideration science systems taking into consideration uh, consumption over production says that perhaps we've entered a new phase that is communism realized so the idea of impossible exchange comes about when he is considering uh, nuclear weapons and fatal strategies, where he pretty much says that we are all hostages now, and not just in relation to nuclear weapons, but to um, uh, military industrial complexes all over the world, to state-run army systems that are, you know, can predict what you'll do before you do it, and all this, this good stuff. We, we might be reminded of a certain phrase he has where he says that he fears not terrorism nearly as much as he fears a state capable of eradicating terrorism, really signaling his worry about uh, total state control. So impossible exchange comes about at that moment when um, there is no real mobility allowed. So people can't be exchanged for anything because they're kind of kept in a state of suspension where they can't be exchanged for their own deaths because their deaths don't mean anything. They can't be exchanged for capital because capital can't be said to mean very much in an age when, you know, nuclear destruction looms over over everyone, kind of arresting anyone from uh, an autonomous position that would make their being exchangeable uh, useless. Their exchange value goes away when they're, you know, held in this kind of e ether kind of, uh, upside down world. So starting out this text, he gives us a similar idea about impossible exchange, but um, makes it more of an like, ontological condition of the world, where he says, everything starts from impossible exchange. The uncertainty of the world lies in the fact that it has no equivalent anywhere. It cannot be exchanged for anything. The uncertainty of thought lies in the fact that it cannot be exchanged neither for or either for truth or for reality. So when he continues on that page, and this I think is a pretty important Baudrillardian idea, but one that he doesn't really develop beyond this text, I don't think. Uh, there are moments, but and I'll get into that, but it goes as follows. Uh, there is not enough room for the world and for its double, so there can be no verifying the world. That is indeed why reality is an imposture. Okay, there's a, a lot to say there, because why is it that we need to double in order to verify something? 
What, what is that idea? Where does that come from? Uh, it would seem as though to verify anything, if we were to be going to be Hegelian about this, we don't need a double unless we consider the other a double. Um, and it would seem as though the double is something that actually calls into question the verif verifiability of a thing in itself. Because if something is doubled, then it is wrested from its autonomous position as an analyzable fact or thing in the world or the world itself uh, and then becomes simply another copy of a copy, right? Because the double always calls into question the nature of the, the real thing. So to make sense of this, and this is my opinion about this because I know that many other Bodiardian people would take beef with what I'm about to say, uh, but that is for because for Baudillard, reality, as he's talking about it here, is that simulated reality, where simulation precedes reality, right? So in that sense, when we use the term reality, and when he's using it here, he's using it almost colloquially just to refer to a kind of natural state of things. So let's follow through with this sequence. If a, a natural state of things is reality, and a natural state of things is always already simulated, that is, you know, the only way humans can perceive anything is by their senses, which in many ways simulate the world, or we understand things through science systems or through language or through anything like that. Uh, we, we, we are in the process of simulating the world. It is in that sense that reality is simulated. And this goes back to another important distinction between two forms of simulation and between two forms of reality, which is, fuck, I should mention it. So in The Perfect Crime, uh, Baudrillard makes a distinction between non-conflictual and contradictory reality. Where non-conflictual, non is it conflictual and non-contradictory? I don't know, f whatever. Uh, the idea is that there is one form of reality that relies on pure operability. So this is the this sorry this is the simulation of networks. This is the simulation of integral reality. This is a simulation of the Baudrillard as we know it. You know the thinker against you know technological development and all that. But there's also another kind of simulation, and that is the simulation that precedes it. This is the simulation indicative of all of humankind, our kind of real ontological condition. That is. The fact that we need simulation to have a relationship to the world. That is, we're always living within simulation. So the same can be said here, where reality, as he's speaking about it, where, you know, it can only be verifiable when there's the presence of a double, that is the existence of a kind of simulacral apparatus, that is the conflictual simulacrum, the one where there can be, you know, chaos introduced to it, negativity, all that, uh, which is good for Baudrillard. Um, then therefore, reality can only exist at that point where there is a double. And then therefore, because there's no room anymore for that, or was there ever, who the fuck knows? Um, then therefore, there cannot be reality. So what this looks like, or this kind of change in the way that things are organized comes out in a few, a few pages later, page five, maybe, uh, where he says that the sphere of the real is itself no longer exchangeable for the sphere of the sign. Reality is growing increasingly technical and efficient. Everything that can be done is being done, though without any longer meaning, any longer meaning anything. And the metal languages of reality, the human and social sciences, technical and operational languages are also developing eccentrically after the fashion of their objects. As for the sign, it is passing into pure speculation and simulation of the virtual world, the world of the total screen, where the same uncertainty hovers over the real and virtual reality. Once they go their separate ways, the real no longer has any force as sign, and signs no longer have any force as meaning. So there is a delicate and necessary interplay between signs and reality. That is for Baudrillard because these two things work in tandem. So when there is a proper give and take between, you know, our linguistic modes of understanding the world, through, which is a big model of simulation, and the way, the hell is that noise? And the ways through which our our reality is constructed, then we, you know, we are seeing an absolutely perfect movement of humanity, right? 
So this goes away when reality and the sign become separated. When reality, uh, given over to the jackals of science and objectivity and you know all that, um, kind of pushes the sign form to the margin, right? Suggesting that, oh, that, that doesn't mean anything. All it does is signify. All it does is tell you what the, the thing is we're talking about, the transcendental, you know, empirical thing is that we're talking about. So what are the consequences of this? Well, he gives an example of the universe, uh, which I don't know if this is true, what he's about to say. I know nothing about astrophysics. Uh, but he says that uh, if dark matter did not exist, our universe would, would have long vanished into thin air, would have long ago vanished into thin air. So, and this is indeed the most likely outcome if we succeed in eliminating it. The real divested of the anti-real becomes hyper-real, more real than real, and vanishes into simulation. So this is essentially what's going to, you know, his kind of apocalyptic vision coming through. Uh, but don't, don't get it twisted, and this is an argument, you know, I've tried to make at other times, is that Baudrillard isn't pessimistic or maybe he's pessimistic, but he's not an unhappy thinker. He's not someone who's, uh, you know, looking back with exalted starry eyes uh, or starry-eyed exaltation at like a time long gone. I think in many ways, Baudrillard is a thinker trying to um, find meaning in a world that has lost it, right? So in that way, he... Uh, I don't, I don't think he's nihilistic or pessimistic or cynical. I think that he has a lot of hope. Um, it just doesn't make itself totally apparent at times because, as he says at another point, um, he doesn't want the system to accelerate as some accelerationist-type thinkers would, um, would think. Instead, he wants to kind of accelerate thought to be able to catch up with the system. So in... Uh, I guess in contact with a system that has grown pessimistic, with a system that has grown nihilistic or anything like that, Baudrillard too kind of puts on that mask. But I think underneath, you know, he's doing it to, as a kind of uh, to play with the system, because that's another pretty central idea in his work, uh, that it's necessary to maintain antagonism in the form of, of a playful... Um, uh, playful in in French, the word is uh, défier, so a kind of challenge. So I digress. Uh, but this getting rid of the anti-real in relation to the real, you know, is his Hegelianism coming through, where uh, he continues on this point a little bit, suggesting that the elimination of the inhuman causes the human to collapse into odium and ridicule. Uh, that is, it's necessary for anything to be considered as a thing to be only considered as such by having a point of reference that it can be related to. So very, you know, the, the other and the self, uh, the being for itself and being in itself, all this, you know, Hegelian jargon. So I think this is also one of his bigger challenges to posthumanism, where critical posthumanism dedicated to the idea of destabilizing distinctions, binary oppositions between, you know, uh, human and other, those considered non-human in the form of animals, marginalized communities, anything like that, uh, is all a project. Baudrillard looks up, would look upon that, I, I've argued in the past, um, suspiciously, where he'd say, okay, but does this mean, or might this destabilization of these types of binaries result in simply the dominant one taking over, sort of homogenizing uh, the other, swallowing them, if you will. So this comes out um, a little later on when he says that we are moving everywhere towards an elimination of the inhuman, towards an anthropological integrism, integrism which aims to submit everything to the jurisdiction of the human. Right, so in this getting rid of the inhuman, you know, we see the human take full form, which we know is a very oppressive thing. Uh, so it's while okay, while the distinctions that have often been 
or the types of actions that have often been motivated by these distinctions, that is the bifurcation of human and inhuman are clearly uh, have been bad and should be challenged uh, and, you know, repudiated with all our effort. Uh, At the same time, it's a little bit of a pipe dream to suggest that, you know, these types of distinctions can't, will just go away. Uh, It would seem as though the, the task should be not in submitting people to a kind of Western logic of humanity, but in a sense to, you know, allow for different or even framing it like that, allowing, um, recognizing that there are, you know, other ways of being, other ways of doing things, which I think would maintain uh, the Baudrillardian idea of alterity, kind of radical alterity, because it is necessary for these types of differences to exist, to ward off, to kind of conjure away, to exercise this integrism, this kind of uh, world order, as he describes it, and you know, not in a conspiratorial sense, but in the universalization of uh, universalization and globalization of Western Western values. So this also speaks to another concern that Baudrillard raises throughout his work, and he doesn't really fully. I actually he does. I guess. Um, I guess he does. I, I won't say that. But when he talks about the distinction between subjects and objects, which I think is simply another way of understanding a distinction, all these distinctions that he's making between the real and the anti-real, between the human and the inhuman, etc. When he makes this distinction between subjects and objects, he wants to maintain his system in, uh, in working order. So what is his system? His system is that of seduction and reversibility. So seduction and reversibility, which are kind of synonymous terms, you know, as someone, an anal kind of, you know, person who's read this stuff would pick a fight with me about that, but please bear with me. Uh, The idea is that no two, no single pole actually has absolute power. We might be heading in that direction, but for Baudrillard, that is not something that simply happens. There's always a giving and a taking between two poles between a so-called authority and a subordinate to that authority. There's always an antagonism. There's always a duel kind of going on. To say otherwise, to say that, you know, there power is over there and we have to throw it, overthrow it, which I should preface this by saying, sure, overthrow power. Like, why not? Um, But for Baudillard, in some sense, he would say that, well, that's a very nice way for you to, to affirm that kind of power to affirm that that power does indeed exist effectively you know keep returning that power so in Baudrillard's words he says that when the subject discovers the object whether that object is viruses or primitive societies the converse and never innocent discovery is also made the discovery of the subject by the object today they say that science no longer discovers its object but invents it we should say then that the object too does more than just discover us. It invents us, purely and simply. It thinks us. So in that way, he's trying to give a narrative to, uh, and again, the, the way I'm framing this, with say, saying it's like a gift is wrong, but, you know, for lack of, you know, better word. Uh, he's trying to recognize that there is always... Uh, a kind of subjectivity of the object and the objectivity of the subject, always. So there's no such thing as power as it was described by anyone, from Machiavelli to Foucault to, to anyone for Baudrillard, because all these thinkers subtly were subtly accomplices in the idea that there is such thing as, you know, power proper, and power exists in these locations, and that's that's what's happening. Whereas for Baudrillard, he's like, why do you look down upon humans so much where is the faith that you have in humanity to always challenge this you know those people rendered subordinate to kind of take it take back power to throw it back onto so-called power so this is an idea that's come out quite a bit in post-colonial theory as well especially with uh homie baba and i want to preface this by saying that not all post-colonial thinkers agree with this idea 
in any capacity? I mean, Spivak gives a very different answer uh, to this question, which is like just as good of an answer. Like it's who knows who's right. Um, but Baba makes the case in the location of culture that the colonized people always, in a sense, turn the gaze back upon itself. So for Spivak, there's power and it exerts itself on subjects and those subjects experience that power, internalize it and embody it. So that's the question, can the subaltern speak? To which he ultimately says no, right? Because the subaltern voice is just gonna be the colonizer, colonizer's voice. But Baba, you know, comes back and introducing his idea of hybridity. That is how there's always a giving and taking between the two. And it's not so simple as to say that there's just one, you know, location that power emanates from and radiates from and is exerted on a group of people. These two things work. They go back and forth. So I think in, in some way, this what the idea that Baudrillard is putting forth here is, has resonates well with Baba's ideas because it doesn't, um, it doesn't disavow kind of the potential of the um, in this in the colonizer case of the uh, doesn't disavow the experiences of the colonized as simply being um, you know mediated by the co uh, colonial voice right gives them a degree of autonomy that some other narratives take from them. All right, so next chapter. Fuck, it's going to take me forever. Um, the Final Solution, or The Revenge of the Immortals. So, immortality being an idea that Baudrillard has a lot of problems with, because immortality is something that is totally unnatural for him. There are two natural things for Baudrillard, that is being born and dying. Other than that, not much is natural. Uh, so... If you take one of those things away, he thinks that to some extent um, the human ceases to be a human as such. So one way that this is done is through cloning. So uh, um, by contrast, with these cephaloid beings in some laboratories across the Atlantic, headless mice and frogs are being cloned. The intention being later to clone headless human beings, which will serve to provide substitute organs. Since the head is regarded as the site of consciousness, it is better to manufacture headless creatures so as to be able to freely use their organs without too many moral and psychological difficulties. So these are some of the forms of experimental cloning, but there is also cloning and hence automatic immortality in nature. It lies at the heart of our cells, which is, you know, indeed the case and any kind of uh, so, you know, some indigenous knowledges would tell us that that is certainly the case. No one truly dies when talking about the terrestrial plane. That is, when you die, you become part of the earth, uh, which the West has, is an idea the West has done away with, you know, with their kind of secularism and, or just with Christianity. It's always about leaving the earth. The earth, the body, you know, these are things that hold us back. So this is one of the great things that science and uh, Christianity have in common, where the project is to essentially rid us of our bodies, which are holding us back. So the two, you know, anecdotal parables, anecdotal kind of parable texts would be like, um, you know, Frankenstein, right? Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is being an example of this scientific desire to get rid of humans through a kind of cloning, doubling, if you will where uh, you have Victor Frankenstein, who's very anxious about getting married to his cousin, no less. Uh, it's his cousin? It's not his sister. I think it's his cousin. Um, very, you know, always putting off his marriage with his cousin and all that. Um, and opts instead to make a human out of, you know, other parts of humans. Because if he can bypass women, you know, those icky, disgusting women, which is kind of the undertone of the text, then, you know, he renders women obsolete, according to him, at least, I, I think, unconsciously, or subconsciously. So he gives, a, or Baudrillard gives us an example of uh, someone that this was done to, so the case of Henrietta Lacks, 
So Henrietta Lacks was a woman who, um, or as he says, uh, Henrietta Lacks was an African-American resident of Turner Station, Baltimore County, USA, who died of cervical cancer in 51 at Johns Hopkins Hospital. So it was found that cells from her tumor were able to reproduce themselves outside the body, a process which is still not properly understood. These so-called HeLa cells have been used in medical experiments throughout the world, and it is often argued that the polio vaccine could not have been created without them. So in the case of Henrietta Lacks, as Baudrillard continues here, um, tumor cells removed during her lifetime were grown on in the laboratory and continued to proliferate endlessly because they were per particularly virulent, remarkable specimens. These cells were sent to all parts of the world and even into space on Discover 17. Thus, the disseminated body of Henrietta Lacks, cloned at the molecular level, continues on its immortal rounds many years after her death. So this is, you know, the case of Henrietta Lacks. I have to mention this is it's taken up by many feminist thinkers uh, because, you know, this all of this was done without her consent. Her body was kind of chopped up and um, done away with. You know, I think it. some people also suggest that because... Um, that because she was a black woman that uh, these doctors felt like they could do whatever they wanted with her body. Uh, she was less than human. The question was, like, if it, if it had been a you know wealthy white woman, would uh, they have done this to her? So it's also brought up all these bunch of different moral problems where, you know, as, as I just read, uh, her the cells in her body allowed the potentially millions of people to be saved from something. Uh, but that's one of the questions we should ask ourselves, like, does that necessarily justify this, um, what was done to her dead body, which is more of a moral question. Uh, but still, feminists have taken this up in interesting ways. But all of these strategies are essentially ways for us to ward off death, because death is something that we fear, because death is something we don't, we've lost a kind of connection to. So this, to kind of grasp this, we got to go back to symbolic exchange and death. So that text in the mid-70s, it was written. Um, Baudrillard makes the case that death has been kind of exercised, right? Because we started to fear it. You know, name your cause, science, Christianity, anything like that, uh, that jumped in and started to, you know, give death a pretty bad name. So death lost its value, where at one point, under the logic of a symbolic exchange, Dying meant a number of different things where sacrifice had meaning. Uh, dying was not, you weren't simply a statistic. You weren't simply something to be mourned. You know, you were given back in some way. Death lost its potential in those ways at some point. So that, what we're seeing now is kind of the extension of that. So because death doesn't have meaning and it is something that we fear, therefore, um, we try to ward it off. Hence our our obsession with extending our lives, our obsession with immortality, you know, the singularity. We want to give ourselves over to the to technology and all this. So then Baudrillard says in his, you know, typical way, kind of playful way, uh, from having been a vital function, death will become a luxury, a diversion. In a future civilization from which death has been eliminated, future clones might, perhaps, afford themselves the luxury of death and become mortals once again in simulated form, kind of cyber death, which I think is totally possible uh, in some way. Like when that, uh, God, when that space rover thing on Mars died, died, see, you see what I'm doing, when it kind of shut off. I mean, like the world fucking mourned for this thing. Uh, and that thing, like, who cares? It's a goddamn robot. Uh, but it, it, it was invested with a kind of, personified energy that it was really quite disturbing um i think in my in my mind at least yet somewhat liberating because it also calls into question a kind of human exceptionalism at the same time but that's you know it's always, always two things at once it's never just one thing so then in order to understand what is going on baudrillard says that we have to kind of put under the microscope all those things that can be cloned rendered immortal and all that where he says that if it turns out that not everything can be cloned, programmed, genetically and neurologically controlled, then what survives can truly be termed human, an indestructible and alienable form of the human. 
which I think is a good point. I don't know what that would look like. What is it that can be can't be cloned? Maybe it doesn't have to do with corporality at all. Maybe it has to do with ideas. Maybe it has to do with things like love, philosophy, um, you know, thinking these types of things. Who the hell knows? Because uh, it seems as though these things are not being reproduced on a mass scale. These things are um, also being warded off, right? So we see not only the expulsion of death, we see the expulsion of... I'm going to sound like a cranky old conservative guy, but in many ways, like, we ward off um, thinking, ward off meaning in many ways, and... Uh, yeah, I won't labor on that point too much because I'm going to sound like a f goddamn fascist. So at one time, as Baudrillard says, our concern with the human had to do with our um, natural gifts and virtues, whatever the hell those are. Uh, so take that with a grain of salt. But he makes an interesting case that the humanism of today, if we can say there is a humanism of today, um, is one that's simply invested in maintaining the human biology right through our being rendered immoral and all this type of stuff so current humanism in its, in its extended version is more concerned with conserving the organic being in the species so the justification for human rights no longer lies in a sovereign moral being but in the prerogatives of an endangered species and this is certainly um you know at the forefront today with all the discussions around climate change like why is climate change always about the earth like, the discussion is, we're killing our planet. The planet's going to be fucking fine. The planet's going to be okay. We are the ones that are fucked, right? But we don't frame it like that because that doesn't look very good. So we have to frame, you know, kind of uh, through a kind of um, a trick of the hand or whatever, uh, convince people that it's not, in fact, about us. It's about something else about the earth when in reality all this is about is the threat that we aren't going to be able to continue as we are of course our simulated versions will continue forever when after the human species you know inevitably wipes themselves out there will still be traces of us as simulated you know youtube people so when an alien race comes to earth many years after we've you know attained this extinction they will have such weird artifacts of what we were up to of the you know i hate saying names on here so screw it but just look at the youtube trending and you'll you'll see i'm no better though i'm a fucking goon and also i believe that this giant enterprise of cloning sir you know serves the end of cloning one race over others the case of Henrietta Lacks was surely an exception. Uh, so we get rid of other races, other cultures, other identities, or as Baudrillard says it, because I, you know, I feel like someone's going to charge me. Oh, you're politicizing Baudrillard. Um, everywhere we see the desire to annex nature, animals, other races, and cultures to a universal jurisdiction. Everything is assigned its place in a hegemonic evolutionary anthropology, marking the positive triumph of a single-track conception of the human. In its Western definition, of course, in the name of the universal, the good, and democracy, human rights are the engine of this anthropic, anthropocratic thinking today, behind which both the human and the inhuman proliferate in strict formal contradiction. So in the wake of this, we also have this obsession with cloning, right? So get rid of the other, clone ourselves, ad infinitum, where, you know, we exercise death within ourselves and see no reason why we can't commit death to the others to the other but let's not get it twisted like this doesn't just come about by some kind of like technological innovation in fact he says that it is through the school system the media system the mass culture and information systems that human beings become copies of each other it speaks to a broader kind of cultural logic and not to some kind of media determinism uh, that i think some people would be want to think in relation to Baudrillard. In fact, the, you know, this is part of the giant enterprise of modernity in many ways, kind of the end result of humanism. All right, chapter three, <clears throat> useless functions. 
So when things become real, when things are given over to the to integral reality, to the digital sphere, to simulation in its negative form, uh, then they become useless for Baudrillard. So whereas at one time, philosophy and you know thought were things that poked holes in the idea of reality, in the idea of truth, anything like that, um, now it is virtual reality, Baudrillard tells us, that challenges reality. It is the non-real that challenges the real, or I should say, the more real than real that challenges the real. So and in this way, because everything is given over to a kind of perfect operability, sound like a broken record, I know, um, then things cease to have a function because the function is made totally apparent where they can disappear within their kind of perfect functioning, losing themselves as a function, as something that can be, um, by having a function be used as a point of difference from, you know, the person using it, right? And then there'd be that antagonism where perfect functionality, kind of adapting itself to the human in a perfect way, um, makes it so that the human doesn't need to, you know, have any kind of a negotiation with it. All right, that's a short chapter. Moving on to the next one. The impossible exchange of one's own life. So as he says, our individual or begins, our individual lives stand under the moral sign of a self-appropriation and hence of a denial of all radical otherness because we are ourselves. We are perfect. It's about me, 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 me. We lose sight of the fact that there can be kind of otherness. And when you're surrounded by people who are all proclaiming themselves to be me, 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 you know, autonomous subjects, but that all subscribe to the same doctrines, kind of, you know, unapologetically, then what you see is, I think for Baudrillard, it's just an affirmation of those ideas ad infinitum, because there is a simultaneous territorialization and deterritorialization, where there's a territorialization of various doctrines and ideas and values, but there's a deterritorialization in the belief in one's own subjectivity that is open up to possibilities and you can do what you want and be what you want freedom of speech and i'm free to say whatever i want no matter how stupid it is it's just i, I can say it <laughs> say it freedom of speech is just freedom from me mediocrity but that's just me let alone you know freedom to be a an asshole but what we see then what this arrives at is what Baudrillard calls is the kind of human Xerox, right? The Xerox of the Xeroxing of the human. Or if if you don't know, Xerox is like copying. Uh, to, is that is Xerox even still a thing? Whatever. But in this kind of echo chamber world, uh, it's kind of Xeroxing of oneself among others that are Xeroxed. Baudrillard says that uh, closed uh, the human becomes closed on himself and doomed to endless identity doomed to endless identity so in a sense the perfect subject the subject without other whose individuation is therefore not at all contradictory with mass status quite the contract contrary indeed he is the dispersal of the mass effect into each individual parcel each encapsulating in itself the seriality the crazed metonymic metonymic structure of the mass the characteristic feature of which is that it is at any any one point substitutable for itself. What the fuck is wrong with me? Um, reading is hard. And appropriately, as the next title is chapter, chapters, <laughs> next chapter is titled, What This Marks is an End to Freedom, where um, modernity also involves the transference of everything which had to do with imagination, dreams, the ideal and utopia into a technical operational reality. So there's no no more possibility for transcendence anymore. So this freedom is kind of ironic that Baudrillard is describing because it's a kind of unfreedom that comes about through our liberation. So this is an idea that comes out in the transparency of evil, especially where there is a liberation of everything, a liberation of all desire. But through this liberation, we kind of enter a new form of control where he says that identity is his obsession with appropriation of the liberated being, but of being liberated in sterile conditions. So obviously like a limited liber liberation. So therefore, as he says, liberty has succumbed to its perverse effect, liberation, or liberation from everything, in a sense. 
But it's important to say that this liberation is often predicated on the, you know, non-liberation of many others. So it's very much like Huxley's Brave New World, where you have alphas that are totally liberated, where they just live a life of total bliss, um, while you have the deltas and betas and all that doing all their kind of work. But as Baudrillard says in another at another point, um, the alphas are in many ways the ones that are the most depressed. Like though you have Bernard, his name is Bernard. It's been so long since I've read that. Um, that is grows unhappy. Which is like why? How, how are you the one that grows unhappy? Um, which is interesting. God, I got to read that book again. That was a good book. So kind of real liberation comes about through another way. Where he says that in any case to be liberated, you first have to be to have been a slave, and to have been a slave, you have to have not been sacrificed. Only the prisoners who were not sacrificed became slaves. Something of this exemption from sacrifice and something of the consequent servility persists in liberated man, particularly in today's servility. Not the servility which precedes liberation, but the servility which succeeds it. Servility of the second kind. Servility without a master. So this, I think, this comes out of maybe Marx even, I don't know where he's getting these goddamn ideas from. Um, it could just be him, who knows. But Marx, uh, in the process, in order to arrive at socialism, it is necessary for the human to recognize their chains, in a sense. So they have to internalize their being slaves before they can be free. But this is a not, it won't mark a freedom that is like a liberation, as Baudrillard is kind of decrying it here. It's a liberation that'll be... Um, predicated not on an explosion of possibility but on the recognition that you are no longer shackled so it's you're always tied in a sense to the experience you had of being a slave but in that recollection that continual recollection you open up yourself to a kind of a new, a new being uh, that is not guided by the logic of liberation but is guided by the logic of not being indentured <laughs> i don't know if that makes any sense but today where there is no longer that distinction between masters and slaves there still is of course but they, they've been totally blurred uh people don't have the ability to recognize when they have shackles and therefore don't have the ability to recognize when they do not have them so they're kind of caught right in this kind of suspension this liminal space uh, not knowing where they actually stand or at one point, you know, you had the sovereign individual you had the or the feudal lord or something that was the clear point of power authority that exerted themselves over the person or the human that goes away, right? So now you have upper management, middle management, blue collar, you know, work that makes understanding where the oppression comes from it makes it difficult to recognize but of course, we still cling to some, you know, the narrative of Marxism, for instance, that tells us that, well, it's capital. Well, what the hell is capital today? It seems so absurd where someone can make an Instagram post and make millions of dollars for it. Where, where does that capital come from and what is that capital going to? Like the use value idea is totally out the window uh, or the use labor theory of capital, labor theory of something like that. Uh, it's a total new phase. It's an impossible exchange phase. So what does all this have to say to the idea of will? So the, you know, want, the kind of Nietzschean idea coming out of the will to power or whatever. So the, the rhetoric of will, responsibility and freedom, the image, playback, or our, playback of our whole moral philosophy is all very well for the disenchanted consciousness of the alienated subject, the subject who is liberated because they no longer know what to do with him as a slave. He himself not knowing what to do with his freedom. So this idea of the will takes us directly into the next chapter, titled The Dice Man. So what is dice, a rolling dice, kind of the randomness of it, what does this mean for the will? Well, for Baudrillard, there is then something fundamental at stake in this existential throw of the dice. It means no longer having any illusions about one's own will. It means going beyond this and opening up to an objective randomness, which might be seen as the randomness of the world itself. It is then a way of transferring one's will, of delegating power, which I think is right, right on the money. 
right? So we live in a world following Baudrillard that is not, there's no freedom, yet we believe ourselves to be autonomous, individual, liberated subjects. So the thing that comes to stand in for our will, you know, our will to, um, to fucking, our will to, uh, video gaming, our will to whatever, um, doesn't mark a will as it has been understood in a kind of elitist philosophical sense. It is instead a kind of, um, uh, a facade, a fake will. So the moment when we throw the dice, that takes us out of this kind of privileged subject position of autonomy and throws us back into a kind of, as he says, a randomness of the world, a kind of uh, indeterminacy that disturbs the idea of a kind of perfect operability, perfect understanding of the world. So what this marks then is the desire to disobey yourself, as Baudrillard says. So kind of taking yourself out of the subject position that you have been told you have, where he says that to be able to disobey moral rules and laws, to be able to disobey others, is a mark of freedom. But the ability to disobey oneself marks the highest stage of freedom. Obeying one's own will is an even worse vice than being enslaved to one's passions. It is certainly worse than enslavement of the will of others. And it is indeed those who submit themselves mercilessly to their own decisions who fill the greatest part of the authoritarian ranks, alleging sacrifice on their own part to impose even greater sacrifice on others, which I think is spot on. This guy makes so much sense. And I don't, people are like, he doesn't make any sense. I don't, I don't get it. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. This guy's like really onto something with these ideas, I find. But we must not get it twisted. This whole rhetoric around chance doesn't just exist at the throwing of the dice. In fact, that like that is a consequence of our existing in a world that has moved so far away from chance and randomness and the arbitrary and the indeterminate. So we see that, you know, these various zones for allowing ourselves to engage in those act activities, right? So we, the casino, you know, the card game, whatever. Uh, we use these as strategies, in a sense, to convince us that we haven't moved away from chance, which is the kind of internal logic of the world. So as he says, arbitrary arbitrariness lies not in choosing chance, but in the unpredictable as it exists, in the relation of, to others as they are, in the unforeseen events of the world and its appearances. Raw existence is, in the end, more improbable than the improbability of dice, and the oblique line of destiny runs through that existence without either will, either our will, or a higher will being involved. And all of this speaks to the idea of destiny that runs through Baudrillard's work, where it comes up various various times. Baudrillard just simply wants to let the destiny of the world unfold, where we're, you know, and wanting us to stop getting in the way of destiny's movement with our, you know, emphasis on science, scientific rationality, all that type of crap, and to just let things unfold, you know, let the chips fall where they may, as Brad Pitt says in the, the Fight Club. Uh, so the other and otherness come into play only in a dual relationship, never in a multiple or plural one. Only in duality are the sexes fatal to each other. In multiple relations, they are merely mirrors of each other and interlocking self-refractions. If chance means that the combinations are infinite in number and everything is possible, that is quite the opposite of destiny. So like, you know, allowing things to just play out, the chips fall where they may. Um, which, you know, there is more here to more to that here than I'm letting on. So uh, when he says that only in duality are the sexes fatal to each other, he sees um, a constant antagonism between, you know, the masculine and the feminine that always work to um, to divert from each other's paths. So the masculine challenges the feminine and the feminine challenges the masculine. And that is the internal logic of the binary for him, which is why in one interview, someone asks him, you know, you think you're this great, like radical thinker, you still work with, within the confines of binaries. To which Baudrillard responds something along the lines of, well, yes, because, you know, that's how our world has been organized for you know, so long. And it is necessary for there to be a binary, for there to be a, a, a kind of distinction, 
right? For there to be a challenge, for there to be a kind of resting of one away from the other and allowing for these things to adapt, change, to move along with the kind of destiny of the world into, you know, new possibilities, you know, new kind of uh, beings where the masculine without the feminine, and I should say, and Baudrillard makes this clear in at least two other spots, this doesn't have to do with men and women. It's, you know, this is just metaphorical. We could use the same thing for hot and cold. So hot constantly disturbs what it means for it to be cold, always being a kind of a relative marker. And cold always disturbs what it means to be hot. These two things, by being in this binary relationship, disturb one another and wrest each other from the kind of subject positions that are have been determined and defined and instead allow them to come into a kind of new possibility. But again, it, again, it's important to note that this isn't a kind of like bastardized reading of Deleuze and Guattari, where it's like, how do you become a body without organs? It is instead the idea that this is always acted upon you in the uh, existence of binaries, right? This isn't something you can take on. You can't make yourself do this because that would just subscribe to the logic of individuality and subjectivity that Baudrillard is kind of challenging here. So I think on that note, I'll end here because that's the first half before moving into the second part titled The Flow of Change, The Cycle of Becoming, The Divide of Destiny. Uh, yeah, I think I'll stop there because go on for too long. Um, I hope that that was helpful. It's a good book, obviously. Uh, if you, It's nice because you can just read, you know, the couple... Some of them are pretty short, you know, a few pages for each chapter, and you'll get uh, the sense of what he's doing um, because they're all, they aren't really connected. It helps to read them all, obviously. It helps to read all his works. It helps to read all of anyone's works. Um, but I hope I'm not too much of a broken record. Like, I'm just trying to present this stuff as it presents itself to me. Uh, and he gets pretty repetitive towards the end, I won't lie. Uh, but on that note, like, if anyone you know, actually listened this far and you have any problems with what I said or agreements or clarifications or want clarifications, you know how to do it. But on that note,